Chapter 5, June 76 They are coming back, through wood smoke weaving from fires and swirls of dust from erratic breezes, you will see. Ghosts are returning, ghosts of young men, young women, young boys, young girls, students. And if you look closely, you will see many of them have torn flesh, have wounds bright with fresh blood, and there is blood in the sands of Soweto. Dennis Brutus Cyril's personal troubles were about to be overshadowed by one of the most dramatic and unexpected political upheavals in South Africa's 20th century history. Soweto's children were to begin an uprising that would mark the beginning of the end of apartheid rule. The morning of the 16th of June 1976 seemed like the beginning of just another normal school day in Soweto. Unbeknown to their parents and to most of their teachers, however, an action committee of the Soweto Students' Representative Council had planned a mass rally in protest against the forced learning of Afrikaans. The schools of Soweto were sites of suppressed anger. Fees of 50 rand per child and the additional expense of books, school uniforms and surcharges for new buildings were widely resented. Between 1965 and 1975, moreover, the enrollment of black children in secondary school had increased Fivefold, Soweto's eight secondary schools at the start of 1972 had become 20 by 1976. Class sizes averaged 60 and at times reached 100. In overcrowded conditions, poorly trained teachers were quick to resort to corporal punishment and matriculation rates were low. By 1976, the average age at matriculation had risen to 20. Even matriculants now found employment increasingly scarce in an economy entering an era of slower growth and periodic recession. In these conditions, the introduction of a language code through the Afrikaans Medium Decree of 1974 was the final straw. It was an imposition made almost casually and against the wishes of the African Teachers Association. The code obliged all students to study what was widely viewed as the language of the oppressor, and forced more advanced students in the social sciences and mathematics to continue with this language later on in school. The decision was part of the wider promotion of Bantu education, which dictated that Africans should be taught skills appropriate to their position in the apartheid economy, essentially as service workers for English and Afrikaans speakers. In a famous statement, the Deputy Minister in the Bantu Education Department, Punti Anson, commented, no, I have not consulted the African people on the language issue, and I'm not going to. An African might find that the big boss only spoke Afrikaans or spoke English. It would be to his advantage to know both languages. Opposition to the decree was driven in part by the same forces that had led to protest in Turfloop and other black university campuses. An awareness of the character of oppression was shared by school children, the black consciousness ideas of Biko and others having spread from the universities to the peri-urban township schools, primarily through radicalized school teachers. Indeed, many of those expelled from the black universities, like Cyril and Libon Mabasa, were offered positions as temporary teachers in schools that were growing exceptionally fast. June 76 was also in part a rebellion organized by Christians. 
Frank Shikani observes that the leadership of these student movements was mostly built up through Christian youth movements, such as those in which he and Cyril were involved. It was only youth movements that gave young people capacity. It was through organization, learning how to give sermons, writing agendas, taking minutes and attending workshops that the youth built their capacity to organize. The children initially responded to the decree with some restraint, despite the fact that, in the words of Ellen Kuzwayo, their only chance of an education had been cruelly snatched from them. They appealed to the authorities to reconsider and shared their concerns with their parents. At the same time, the children of Soweto schools, particularly in areas such as Orlando, that had a history of political protest reaching back to the 1950s, were organized into potentially effective students' representative councils. There was also a wider umbrella body, the South African Students' Movement, SASM, that allowed for the development of campaigns involving schools across many parts of Soweto and that incubated black consciousness thinking. There was also a wider umbrella body, the South African Students' Movement, SASM, that allowed for the development of campaigns involving schools across many parts of Soweto and that incubated black consciousness thinking. The children of Orlando West Primary School, a few kilometers from Cyril's home, began a boycott of classes at the end of April 1976, refusing to return until the decree was lifted. As support for their actions spread, it was schoolchildren themselves who were the primary drivers of the protest actions and the planners of the rally on the 16th of June. As word spread that the march was to take place that day, thousands of children were persuaded by their peers to take part. Somewhere between 3,000 and 10,000 students set off on the march, brandishing placards bearing slogans such as Down with Afrikaans! The police rapidly barricaded the route of the march and the students took a circuitous path that eventually brought them close to Orlando High School. Along the way, the students avoided antagonizing the police. However, as police reinforcements arrived, the potential for tragedy grew. The police were not trained or equipped to control large gatherings. Their only strategy was to throw tear gas canisters into a crowd in order to disperse it. This provoked the children into throwing stones, waving their placards harder, and shouting with increased vigor. There was still hope that the event might pass off without loss of life, but poor training and callousness together precipitated a tragedy. An officer fired a gunshot into the air, triggering panic among the students. Children ran in all directions, and some police officers started firing at random. Four children were shot including Hector Peterson, whose photo in the arms of another student was to capture the attention of newspaper audiences around the world. As violence spiralled out of control, youth from across Soweto came onto the streets and began attacking all manifestations of authority. They torched government offices and vehicles. Beer halls and bottle stores, believed by many youth to encourage acquiescence in oppression, were set alight. Police discipline fell apart. Around two dozen children were killed. Dozens more were wounded. The fighting escalated the next day. Police reinforcements flooded the townships in armoured cars armed with automatic and semi-automatic weapons. Some police drove around taking pot shots. 
seemingly considering almost anyone in the streets as a legitimate target. Meanwhile, the schoolchildren had been joined by the oppressed and dispossessed of Soweto, all of those frustrated by limited economic opportunity and political oppression. The conflict spread to other townships on the Rand and then made its way to Cape Town in the Eastern Cape. The singular event of the Soweto uprising catalyzed a wider Soweto revolt that entrenched school boycotts as a political instrument, saw unrest spread to more than 200 communities across the country, and ultimately resulted in a massive government crackdown against its enemies. By February 1977, on the conservative official count, 575 people had been killed, 494 of them African, 75 coloured, 5 white and 1 Indian. Of the victims, 134 were under the age of 18. The Cape Town protests were especially notable because of their intensity in the coloured schools of the Cape Flats. The inclusivity of black consciousness thinking, its incorporation of those designated coloured and Indian and its rejection of the non-white label, made it a potent competitor to non-racial thinking as a force in national politics. Like the industrial unrest of 1973, the Soweto uprising took the state authorities and the political opposition equally by surprise. For Ramaphosa, there was one big lesson to learn. The black consciousness movement lacked both the intellectual framework and the political organization to capitalize on these events. For the Ramaphosa family, the uprising was a turning point. Samuel Ramaphosa had been a policeman for almost 20 years and the police stations of Soweto such as Morocco, where he was stationed, were suddenly key targets for the students and disaffected youth. He was a clever and experienced man who managed to keep in touch with Cyril, even though he, Cyril, was very, very angry at this time. Nevertheless, the uprisings left even a respected police officer at risk from politically motivated attack. Cyril and his brother couldn't see ourselves in a situation where we'd have to stand outside the house defending our father from our comrades. For Douglas Ramaphosa, the matter was of special urgency. He had become a prominent student leader and found it hard to live with the contradiction between the things he shouted from the political platform, including the need to fight the police, and the reality of having a policeman as the head of the household in a home he called the police station. Douglas was leading something of a double life. The ANC was almost non-existent in Chiawello of Cyril and Douglas's youth. There was known to be an ANC underground, but very few people came across it. Yet in 1974, an ANC exile turned up at the Orlando house of a friend of Douglas. He was a relatively senior man who travelled in and out of the country. For Douglas, this was all scary but exciting. He read the illegal publications the man brought with him, including the journal Seshaba, and in the course of 1974 and 1975 he became active in the ANC underground. Much of the activity was routine, distributing pamphlets, for example, on political change in Angola and Mozambique, yet it was also dangerous work that brought the risk of detention. Douglas was just 17 years old and he did not reveal his activity to Cyril or his father. After an unhappy year at boarding school in Venda, he returned in 1976 to Sekano and Tuani School, where he was elected a member of the Student Representative Council. 
In the course of the year, he became his school's representative on the Soweto Students' Representative Council, which was to be at the centre of the uprising. This conflict was one of Douglas's generation, and not Cyril's. While Cyril tried to assist the students and to protect them from unnecessary harm, Douglas was at the forefront of organising marches, going from school to school and persuading the students to take to the streets. Cyril decided that the issue of Samuel's job had to be settled. He went to his father and explained that his children were children of the liberation movement. According to Cyril's later recollection, his father retired in 1976 during the Soweto uprising because we prevailed upon him to resign, my brother and I, and the family. However, in reality, Sergeant Ramaphosa was not immediately persuaded to leave his job by his children. Indeed, he waited for the following year, until 1977, before leaving the force. This allowed him to claim a full pension for 25 years of service. Moreover, the short period before resignation allowed him to make plans for the business that would sustain the family in the absence of a police salary. Samuel Ramaphosa was to prove as successful a businessman as he was a policeman. He initially owned one truck, a most unusual possession in Chawelo at the time, and he used this vehicle to transport women such as Ishmael Mkabela's mother to nearby farms as early as four in the morning. The women would pick millies, which they would take back on the truck and later hawk on the streets of Chiawelo. The sergeant also used the vehicle to run a coal delivery business, which initially supplemented his police salary. With his skill and tenacity, his network of contacts, and the money he received from his pension, he soon built a very successful business around a veritable fleet of two trucks and a bucky. Douglas Ramaphosa helped with this business after he was expelled from high school, driving women in the small bucky to and from the cornfields. Cyril and his friends were sought out for advice by the youth during the 1976 uprising. They were already part of networks of activists, primarily religious contacts from the SCM and black consciousness political groups. Come 1976... Mkabela recalls, we were much more conscientized than students who'd been to just one meeting or just one conference. Among their mentors were Bayez Nordier and the Reverend Morris Ngakani, the National Secretary General of the SCM. Yet, while Ramaphosa later described himself as well-connected, he was not an active participant. He was both engaged and concerned. I saw a lot of the destruction The thing that captivated most of us was the terrible blunder they, the government, had made in terms of forcing the teaching of Afrikaans and that they were paying for the terrible blunder that they had made. Given the tender age and inexperience of those driving the uprising, activists from Cyril's generation served a guiding role trying to protect young people from the increasingly uncontrolled violence of the security police and the more or less unaccountable police forces drafted into the townships. The government had little idea how to respond to the uprising except with more violence. As Ellen Kozwayo lamented, what other government would meet with bullets the grievances of school children? Detentions of those suspected of involvement in oppositional politics intensified. 
Inevitably, it was only a matter of time before Cyril was detained once again. The security police picked him up early in August. Ramaphosa was arrested at 3 a.m. together with a very close Christian friend from Venda, Chifiwa Moofe, who had come to visit him. Moofe was not sought by the police, but he was mistaken for the 16th of June leader Titi Mashinini, to whom he bore an uncanny resemblance. Although released the next morning, Moofe was so radicalized by his encounter with the police that he was reborn as a political activist on his return to Venda. A few months later, he was arrested by Bantustan police and beaten so severely while in detention that he died of his injuries. After his arrest, Cyril was taken to the notorious headquarters of the Johannesburg police at John Foster Square. There had been many tragedies and horrors in police custody in the building. Detainees had been thrown and pushed from their windows to their deaths. In a case that would have been well known to Cyril, a young man called Ahmed Timmel died in police custody on the 27th of October 1971 after committing suicide by jumping from the 10th floor of John Foster Square. His death was hardly singular. He was the 22nd person to die in police custody since detention without trial had been introduced. The security police, however, coined the phrase Indians can't fly in mockery of Timol's death and used it as part of their campaign of public terror. A young man called Gerald Suzani from Orlando East, who was detained at about the same time as Cyril, was tormented with accounts of Timol's fate. He remembers being taken to the tenth floor of the building in the early hours of the morning by English-speaking policemen. They asked me if I heard of Ahmed Timol. Then they took me to the window, and I was told that this was called Timol Heights. I was held by my feet and dangled outside the window. I closed my eyes, sure that I was dead. Cyril's mother was distraught. She would sit and cry, desperate with fear about the fate of her oldest son. By this time, things were only to get worse. In August, Douglas was also picked up by the security police and taken to John Foster Square. The cells were designed to keep prisoners in isolation. Most of the rooms had no view of the sky outside, and their inward-facing perspex windows were opaque and fitted with small ventilation holes. Food would be pushed through a gap in the perspex as if feeding a laboratory animal. Detainees were not permitted to talk. Nevertheless, the prisoners had developed an elementary communication system that allowed them to notify one another of arrivals and departures. Messages were written on pieces of toilet paper and smuggled between cells by the orderlies who brought the food. Cyril very quickly learnt that his little brother had arrived in a different part of the prison. He was able to send a message to Douglas asking whether he had been tortured and offering him what little emotional support could be conveyed on a small piece of toilet paper hidden under a tray. Towards the end of Cyril's six months in detention, the two brothers were transferred to Norwood Police Station. Once again they were held in solitary confinement, but at the very end of Cyril's period in the station the two brothers were placed in opposite cells. We could see each other through the grill gate. Cyril was released in February 1977, but Douglas was to remain in detention until July, after almost a full year behind bars. Soon after Cyril's release, the black consciousness movement was struck a painful blow. Steve Biko, the former medical student who had become almost synonymous with black consciousness, 
died on the 12th of September 1977 in Pretoria after having been beaten and tortured in detention in Port Elizabeth. Cyril's reaction to this traumatic event and to the political fallout that followed demonstrated that he had moved into a more reflective phase of politics. He knew all too well that the death was certain to bring a fresh round of violence and to unleash yet another murderous killing spree by the poorly trained police. He was also aware that there was no effective political organization in place to harness the energies of Biko's mourners and to channel it to any productive political purpose. He immediately acted to minimize the human cost of violence that was surely on its way. At Turflup, still one of the key centers of black consciousness activism, Biko's death had been greeted with sorrow and anger. The police occupied the campus, disrupting student meetings and detaining student leaders with a heavy hand. In October, after the immediate period of protest was over, the SRC arranged for a requiem mass to be held on the campus. They asked a young pastor, Diamond Atong, to address the students. Atong had recently returned from the United States, where he'd been studying a variant of radical black theology. He was now teaching theology as the employee of an American-funded foundation called the Campus Crusade, which was based in a small compound close to the campus. Atong spoke thoughtfully and with moderation at the early morning memorial service, only to discover to his horror that the police had an agenda all of their own. Armed officers stormed the service and the university authorities used this as a pretext for closing the residences and expelling the students. Atong found himself suddenly playing host to dozens of young students who lived too far from Turfloop to simply go home. Atong feared for their safety in the explosive environment the police had created and was uncertain what to do. Later that afternoon, Ramaphosa arrived with some friends from Johannesburg. He was still a highly regarded figure for the local student leaders, and he immediately recognized the primary danger, that students would drift off the campus without money or transportation in an effort to make their way home. On the back roads, they would be vulnerable to the vengeance of the marauding police. Having established that Atong was of like mind, Ramaphosa collected money from the students until sufficient had been pooled for his purposes. Together with Atong, he drove to Petersburg, now Polokwani, where the two men rented a film projector and a number of films, just as Cyril had done many times before as chairman of the student union and the SCM. On their return, they showed films to the students on campus until late into the evening, encouraging them to remain out of harm's way until the following morning when tempers had cooled. In time, Ramaphosa and Atong were to become firm friends. As we shall see, they were also soon to become business partners in Soweto. In Johannesburg, Ramaphosa managed to secure work as an article clerk in the offices of a small-time lawyer, Henry Dolowitz, in Harley Chambers on Jeppy Street. Dolowitz was a mildly conservative spokesman for common sense, and became a critic of the new constitution of 1996. The victim rots in a public hospital in Soweto while the criminal is put up in a private ward with a television to watch. This country is too kind to the criminals. Dolowitz possessed an unusually clear sense of the absurdity of apartheid.
Any thinking person could see it didn't work and that its end was just a question of time. He also had an ability to identify talent, an ability that was blind to the color of a person's skin. The clerk who preceded Cyril was George Malaleke, who was to go on to become a widely respected judge after 1994. Dolowitz was also highly tolerant of Cyril's politics and the frequent absences this imposed on him. The young clerk would disappear for days at a time, explaining that the special branch was looking for him. On occasion, a laid-back character was a necessary requirement for employing Ramaphosa. Dolowitz received an accusatory call from the police telling him that they had identified him by his registration number as the driver of a speeding car that had created an accident in Soweto. In reality, this was an early example of Cyril's legendarily dangerous driving. Possessor of a mischievous sense of humor, Dolowitz enjoyed sharing terrible jokes with Cyril. He advised the about-to-be-married Ramaphosa in 1978 that he must take out an ANC, an anti-nuptial contract. He also endured Cyril's bad jokes with good grace. When I am president, Cyril would jest, you will be made Minister of White Affairs, observed Ramaphosa's ambition once again, partly concealed beneath a cloak of humor. The two men never had a single argument in the two years Cyril worked at the firm. The young clerk rarely spoke seriously about politics, although when he did so with passion one day, quite unexpectedly, Dolowitz was never able to forget his words. We won't live with this chain around our necks. I don't care if we have to wipe things out and start from the beginning, and it takes a hundred years. We'll do it. We won't live with this chain. Cyril was a scrupulous employee, showing attention to detail and demonstrating compassion for the clients. He was also a hard worker who stayed in the office late, often well after the other occupants had left for the night. Dolowitz remembers that he could never be quite sure what Cyril was doing in the late evening hours, and his suspicions were soon to be confirmed. Dolowitz was a cool customer and concerned about the attentions of the police, Yet Cyril's political activity was to bring his employer to the attention of the special branch. Dolowitz had been offered a position as part-time private security guard for the Israeli airline El Al. These much-coveted posts were passed between members of the Johannesburg Jewish community, and they entailed few responsibilities to oversee aspects of the ground security of the periodic flights between South Africa and Israel. In exchange... Those chosen received four free tickets per year on the airline, the equivalent of a very considerable stipend. Security clearance was required at both ends, however, and while Dolowitz was cleared by Israeli security, he waited in vain for the South African Special Branch to clear him. It was many years before he was able to get to the bottom of the decision. In his file, recovered after 1994, it was recorded that he had taken into his employment one Cyril Ramaphosa, who had access to the offices of Dolowitz on Jeppe Street. Ramaphosa had been seen entering these offices in the evenings in the company of communists and agitators and was known to have had meetings in the building with them. Dolowitz was struck by Ramaphosa's utter disdain for the regulatory minutiae of apartheid 
He remembers the absurdity of the two lifts in the Jeppy Street chambers. One was marked whites only, the other whites and blacks. Cyril never gave any indication that he even noticed the signs. Every single day he rode in the whites only lift. The building superintendent would watch him, fuming and outraged, but could never confront him. Complained Dolovitz, the superintendent used to give me hell about it all the time, asking me to put a stop to it, but he never said a word to Cyril. While he clocked in Jeppy Street and continued to save souls in Soweto, Ramaphosa was confronted with a question with which all his peers also grappled. Should he stay in South Africa and continue the struggle for change from within, or should he leave for the uncertainty of exile? In the years that followed, a mythology of heroism and military struggle developed around the exile movement, and on their return, some exiles even came to believe that they really were liberating heroes. This portrayal could not but cast a negative light on those who had stayed behind, whose lives involved necessary accommodation and compromise with a white state and the Bontistan system. Whether an individual chose exile was in part a matter of generation, temperament, personal circumstance and luck. The factors pushing Cyril towards exile were growing in the late 1970s. The conflict between apartheid and its enemies was escalating. The regime was using its power to ban and harass its opponents, making everyday life ever more intolerable and dashing any hope of political change. The prospect of another period of detention was always in the minds of those who had been detained before. Many former prisoners had yet to come to terms with their experiences, estranged from friends, constantly reliving the trauma of torture and enduring nightmares, depression and unfocused anxiety. Many would also suffer from unexplained symptoms, stomach pains, headaches, sweating and trembling, shivering and uncontrollable crying. Fear of death, one's own or that of friends and family, unsurprisingly haunted many activists. Between 1976 and 1978, many of Cyril's friends and associates left the country. Griffith Zabala's younger brother, for example, went into exile with the Black Consciousness Movement, BCM. While the majority of exiles would join the ANC, if they had relatives or strong political affiliations with the Pan-African Congress, PAC, or the BCM, they would choose these as their exile homes. In 1977, Ishmael Mkabela's younger brother, a friend of Douglas Ramaphosa, also left to join the exiled BCM. Ishmael still remembers his brother's words, I'm not as strong as you are. He would rather meet his fate holding a gun than become another powerless victim of the security police. Chenuwani Farisani was driven into exile only after four periods of detention. Like Mandela before me, they kicked me on my black mouth. I lost two black teeth in the process. I wanted a room in my own house, a site in my own country, and like Oliver Tambo before me, they are trying now to force me into exile. I'm refusing to accept exile. I've not asked for exile status. I am a South African. Older siblings like Cyril were especially unwilling to leave despite the hazards they faced unless banning orders and restrictions on freedom of movement made it simply impossible for them to function. Eldest children were more likely to have work 
and so their parents and younger siblings were more likely to depend on them for material security. They would feel this sense of responsibility keenly. For Cyril, one of the things that held me back was a family situation. My father and my mother were getting old and I wanted to be around, to be there for them. And it turned out my brother left, and I was rather pleased, when I joined the trade union movement, that I'd stayed to make a meaningful contribution. Another eldest son was Caesar Molibazzi, soon to become Cyril's friend and later to achieve fame as a television evangelist. Molibazzi's younger brothers, George and Lefty, left for exile in the 1970s, whereas Caesar's journey took place in reverse. He was in the United States studying between 1969 and 1976 and graduated on the very day the uprisings began, 16th of June, 1976. The choice was simple. I packed up and went back home. Those who could stay during what followed did so. They felt they had to give leadership to create parallel structures to oppose the regime, to support and lead the churches and trade unions without which opposition to apartheid would simply crumble. It was probably only a matter of time before Douglas Ramaphosa went into exile. Temperamentally, he was not suited to the accommodation of domestic struggle. Cyril, on the other hand, was tireless in exploiting the loopholes of the apartheid system to make advances and protect the vulnerable, using his knowledge and compassion to make things better than they would have been. Douglas was always more aggressive and confrontational, less crafty and cunning in his operations. He was more vulnerable to being detained once again and probably more susceptible to further psychological scarring should this occur. Although Douglas's parents also sent him away for a period of education in Sebasa, he'd returned to study at Sekano and Tuani for his matriculation. But he'd been forced out of high school by security police harassment after the uprising and had been obliged to write his matric examinations as a private candidate through Damlin College. There was no prospect of him remaining in a university or out of the hands of the security police for long. Moreover, he had a desire to fight. His decision to leave was very explicitly one to take up arms against the enemy. According to his friend, Rams Ramashia, he was a very angry man indeed. In 1980, events forced his hand. An ANC exile contacted him to warn him that some of his underground ANC associates had been arrested in possession of firearms. There was evidence directly incriminating Douglas, he was led to believe, and if he did not leave the country, he was likely to be detained for a very long time. The exile suggested that Douglas would be able to work at the Solomon Matlangu Freedom College in Tanzania, a school at which the children of ANC exiles were educated, a possibility that appealed to Douglas. He left the country suddenly, telling almost no one, certainly neither Cyril nor his parents, about his intended departure. He left behind him a very young son. Londani was never to see his father again. Such were the almost everyday tragedies of the time. Although he was met over the border by friends, including Ishmael Mkabela's brother, he was resolute in his determination to remain with the ANC. After two years of teaching in Tanzania, he was sent to study in the Soviet Union and would not return to South Africa until the ANC was unbanned more than a decade later. 
It is conceivable that Douglas was recruited by the ANC precisely to be able to put pressure on his older brother at a later date. On some accounts, at least, the younger brother of Frank Shikani was recruited for just this reason. Cyril was in fact obliged in later years to reach Douglas through the ANC. He was able to meet up with him in Moscow in 1985 on a trip that was to bring him in contact with Joe Slovo and Mac Maharaj for the first time. He saw his brother again in the early 1990s in Tanzania when Douglas had returned from the Soviet Union to teach at Solomon Matlangu Freedom College. There was little good to come from either exile or remaining in Soweto. For those who remained, everyday life was a dangerous struggle. The most pressing question for those who remained was how to advance the condition of the people while struggling to secure political power. Whereas Cyril's friends continued trying to build black consciousness organizations, Cyril's mind began to take him in a different and more practical direction. He was determined, in the words of his friend Chenuwani Farisani, not to land exactly the same set of punches again. For their part, his friends were not to be altogether impressed with Cyril's new turn of mind. Indeed, there was some contention among them about the new circles in which Cyril was moving. Ishmael Mkabela and Libon Mabasa had continued in a straight line after Soweto, organizing and agitating in black consciousness politics. Cyril, however, while always acknowledged by them as a leader, found less time for black consciousness, even if he still attended weekend meetings of the Black People's Convention in Soweto. Ramaphosa was rumored to be drinking heavily. Perhaps he was coming to terms with the after-effects of detention. It was quite common for detainees to step back in order to take stock and recover their perspective and sense of purpose. The disenchantment, Cyril later described, with the limitations of black consciousness thinking, may have reduced his enthusiasm for the fray. In an interview many years later, he observed that his feelings about black consciousness were changing in the late 1970s. Whites were clearly the enemy. They were responsible for the hardships our people were going through. They were not to be trusted. They were not to be worked with in any way whatsoever. So after the 76 uprising, after my detention, I outgrew that because I realized that we needed to move away from this parochial way of assessing the situation in our country and see that non-racism, going beyond just blackness, was perhaps to further our objectives. And there were whites we could actually work with who could make a contribution in our struggle. So from 77, when I got out of prison, I started charting a different path. Cyril was increasingly practical in his response to the problems of the community. On the one hand, he intensified his work in Christian youth movements. There were at that time three large Christian youth clubs operating across Soweto, a troika sharing a degree of camaraderie but also manifesting a measure of competitiveness. While Cyril had for some time been involved with life-bearers, he was to join and rapidly become chair of Youth Alive Interdenominational Christian Association which was being run by his friend Caesar Molibazzi. Molibazzi had met Cyril at a Christian movement conference for university students in June 1974 in Lesotho, where Cyril was representing the SCM. Molibazzi, meanwhile, was studying in the United States and was drafted in at the last minute to act as keynote speaker. 
In the discussion around violence and the struggle that Molibazzi facilitated, he could not help noticing the impressive and measured contributions of Ramaphosa and his colleague Frank Shikani. As was common in the Christian movement of the time, the general thrust of the conference was that the struggle required non-violent but forceful actions undergirded by a well-developed social conscience. When Molibazzi returned to Soweto in 1976, he was keen to link up with robust thinkers willing to question orthodoxy and to act constructively. They would meet on Saturday mornings and work out how to develop the youth organization and, above all, to keep people safe. The activity of the association was austere and informed by conservative morality. Part of the intention was to keep young people occupied. Intense motivational sessions encourage participants to adhere strictly to their demanding set of moral principles, forswearing alcohol and cigarettes, and treating all other people, regardless of station, with respect. On Malibazzi's account, Cyril's concerns went further. He was keen to see the development of a cadre of leaders who appreciated not just the operation of democracy, but also the mechanisms that would make it work. Cyril characteristically drew up a new constitution for the organization. As was his way, he did not try to impose it directly, even though he had devised it alone, but rather insisted on a laborious process lasting several months in which the senior members of the youth association worked through and agreed to the contents of the constitution together. The document showed a new maturity of thought, including several democratic mechanisms hitherto absent, such as annual elections to leadership positions and organizational innovations such as the concept of team leaders borrowed from the trade union movement. Youth Alive filled a desperate need in a Soweto full of angry and fearful young minds. Diamond Atong remembers Ramaphosa working primarily with students and young people, organizing camps, retreats and conferences, in an attempt to mitigate the worst effects of the violence that was sweeping across Soweto. The youth mission worked to alleviate the consequences of abnormal levels of violence and what we now call the post-traumatic stress associated with it. Meanwhile, Cyril and his Christian friend Diamond Artong set up a building business called Atorama Construction, Atorama being an amalgam of their two surnames. This was Cyril's first real venture into business, albeit with a charitable mission to improve living conditions in the community and to put unemployed youth to work so as to keep them out of mischief. The firm mostly undertook small-scale building work, typically upgrading four-room houses that might contain ten or more occupants by adding garages, additional rooms and bathrooms to the side or the rear of the property. Much of Atorama's work was meeting needs identified in a survey of the community, with money going only towards building materials. Besides using Youth Alive volunteers, Atong and Cyril drew on students of building construction from the vocational college in Dube, Soweto, who honed their skills in the program. Some of the work was profit-making, and Ramaphosa began to accumulate wealth on a small scale for the first time. Cyril was very busy with part-time legal clerking, Youth Alive and Atorama, as well as with the discovery of new social and political circles. 
his political activity was taking something of a back seat. Then, on the 1st of June 1978, Cyril and Hope Mudal got married. This union was not a surprise, because they had been close for almost a decade. Their friend, Peter Paswani, was struck at Mpapuli High by their common commitment to the same union between politics and Christianity. For respectable Christians like Cyril and Hope, marriage was, among other things, a way to escape from sin and to be committed to a person and to have a relationship blessed by the church. There had been bad news just a week before the wedding. Libon Mabasa had been detained again by the security police. Nevertheless, the long traditional wedding went ahead and was celebrated with dancing in the streets of Chiawelo. Cyril also bought his first car at about this time, a small white and cream BMW, plainly an impractical vehicle for a person of his needs and finances. It was characteristic of his approach to both cars and to expenditure to prefer an unreliable BMW to any more sensible alternative. Cyril's father, now made financially comfortable by his business ventures, agreed to contribute half of the total 4,000 rand cost of the vehicle. From the day of its purchase, Cyril was a very proud owner, maintaining the car scrupulously and performing tricks such as driving hundreds of meters very fast in reverse gear. The car needed a good deal of attention, and Ramaphosa had to learn the skills to service and repair it himself. This vehicle was later to become the victim of Cyril's casual attitude to the rules of the road, and to long mileage that union business would demand of him. Eventually, the battered vehicle could only be refueled while the engine was still running. Although he claims to be a careful driver, others have always seen him as reckless behind the wheel, on one occasion careering so fast that Hope believed that they were going to die. Cyril and Hope moved into a back room of the Ramaphosa house on Matlaba Drive, a room that Atorama added to the building for that purpose. They were to live there for about a year. Hope was working for a controversial organization that had been created in 1976 called the Urban Foundation. She had completed her BA degree in social work at the University of the North and was employed as a public relations officer and community liaison officer in the Transvaal region of the foundation. With the help of a housing body from the Urban Foundation, the couple then moved briefly into an area of model housing laid down by the foundation in Pimville. Their house was still small, however, and Ramaphosa began construction of a new residence built under his own hand in Rockville, close to Morocco police station where his father had been a police officer. When Western Native Township had been bulldozed, and Vender and Shangan residents had been forcibly removed to Chiawelo, many of Cyril's childhood friends from the township were relocated to Rockville instead on ethnic grounds. In his choice of Rockville for his new home, Ramaphosa was consciously deciding to rejoin old friends and striking a personal blow against the tribalist logic of apartheid. 